Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Today, we'll have the potluck after service, say goodbye to Cassidy. Well, not goodbye forever, but send her off really well. And uh, at the end of the service today, uh, we're, we're going to pray for her and just bless her. And uh, I just, I just want to say that I've been here in Yarrington for six years ministering in this church now. I had no idea I'd be here that long when I came. And, uh, but ho- hopefully you're happy we're still here. And, uh, but over those six years, and I mean this from all of my heart, uh, sending Cassidy off to Moody Bible Institute that's a, just a real high point for me, and just really is, because um, it's, uh, for me, when I first met Cassidy, I mean, you know, I thought this is a fine young lady, a young teenager, but I would have never in a million years thought that God's calling her to full-time ministry and that she's going to go to Moody Bible Institute, because this, if you don't know what Moody is, I mean, you couldn't find uh, any, any educational institute in the United States for preparation for ministry that's, that would be better than this. I mean, it's just a really prestigious and a really good place to go. Um, it is in Chicago, but believe me, Chicago's not scary. Every place can be scary if you're not walking with God, but when you're walking with God, Chicago's amazing, the best pizza in the world. And I mean, I'd fly there just to have a pizza. So uh, I, I really believe that God's going to do great things in her life. And through this, and I, I'm just proud of her, and I, I hope that all of you are too. So it's just really a blessing. Amen. So let's get into the Word of God this morning. I'm going to have you open up Acts chapter 21, and I'm going to do something unique that's going to scare you at first because you're going to think you're going to be here listening to the sermon for three hours, but you won't be, okay? We're not going to read very many verses out of this. I'm just going to more tell you what's going on, because in, but we're going to go over Acts chapters, chapters, 21, 22, and 23 today, okay? Now, we may come back to these. We've been doing a series in the book of Acts, as you know, and we may come back to these and draw some more things out of them, but there's one specific word that Jesus speaks to Paul, and you have to, the whole story centers around that word that he speaks to Paul that's in these three chapters. So there really isn't any way to get that word across without bringing all those chapters together. So I didn't tell you ahead of time, but I'm going to tell you now, you have a homework assignment. And I mean everybody, Frank, Sasha, everybody, you have a homework assignment. Sometime this week, go through and read chapters 21, 22, and 23 in their entirety and meditate on the things that the Lord's speaking to this morning. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your presence in this place this morning. I thank you, Jesus, that you are here, that you are here. And just as you stood by Paul in the night and you spoke this word to him, that you stand by each one of us today. I pray that this morning that you would make your presence tangible to each one of us, that we would literally feel that you are here standing with us. We come to your table this morning to partake of your body and to partake of your blood. Your presence is in this place. You have promised us that wherever two or more of us gathered in your name, that you would be there in our midst. And I pray, Jesus, that we would feel your presence this morning, 
and we hear your voice speaking to our hearts individually. I pray, Lord, that our ears would be open to hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to this church, to each one of us, and to our families this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the title of today's message comes from the words that Jesus speaks to Paul. Take courage. I believe that it's a word that we need to hear today because we live in a world that is filled with great uncertainties today, more so than any time in history, I think. We live in a nation that is filled with great uncertainties today. Many of you experience that things you used to be able to plan, you're not always able to plan now, or your plans get changed by uncontrollable circumstances. Uh, the economy is such a mess that I don't remember it being such a mess even when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, and maybe that's just because I wasn't in charge of paying for everything and it was that much of a mess. I don't know, but it's a mess. It's a just complete mess. I mean, who would have thought that when gas got down to $4.95 a gallon, you would rejoice because, oh, it's not $5 a gallon. But it's just absolutely crazy what's going on in our world today. And I believe that the Lord wants each one of us to hear this message. Take courage. So last week we began in chapter 21, and we were talking about um, the oath, uh, the promise, the uh, dedication that Paul made of his life to, to the Lord. And he took the oath of a, of a Nazarite upon himself, if you remember that. And we talked about Paul getting a haircut. I'm not going to go over all that again, but he's still in this oath of the Nazarite. And if you remember, he got his haircut when he was way back in the area of Corinth. And in the entire third missionary journey, his whole focus is still on getting to Jerusalem. And he has to get to Jerusalem. And you'll remember we looked at how all of his friends and all the people that love him are telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. But he knows what the Holy Spirit has told him. And he knows that, there, that when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested because the Holy Spirit has told him that. And he's had multiple prophetic words confirming that to him. But he's not afraid of that because he knows that it's time for him to go there. And he knows that he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. And he believes and understands that in some way that he doesn't know yet, God's going to get him to Rome. Because Jesus has told him those things, and that's been revealed to him from the beginning of his ministry. So as we go into chapter 21 further, I'm just going to give you some summary here, and we're going to read a few verses. In chapter 21, from verses 17 uh, through verse 26, chapter 21, verses 17 through 26, when you read that on your homework, you'll see that Paul and his team... Uh, uh, who are all together, if you remember from last week, they're traveling together. They are received gladly by the apostles in Jerusalem. And you'll remember that he had a big offering to give to them, a lot of money to bring to the church that the Gentile churches had collected to send to the, to the uh, church there in Jerusalem to support them. And when he is received by them gladly, they give him some advice. They say to him, basically, uh, we know that you're under this uh, oath of the Nazarite, and you're going to go to the temple and you're going to have your head shaved. Do you remember that? That the oath of the Nazarite is consummated by having, having your head shaved. And that was true for a man or a woman, whoever took that oath. And that he had taken that oath because he dedicated his life, I'm going to go to Jerusalem against all odds. I'm going to do the will of God. And he bound himself with this oath of the Nazarite. So he's going to go into the temple and he's going to have his head shaved. 
And when I say head shaved, that means his hair on top of his head and his beard completely. And you know, we don't have any idea how much hair Paul had on top of his head. You know, he was older by this time. He may have had less, but he definitely had a full beard because all Jews would have carried a full beard. Uh, and, and the law even required of them uh, to do so. And so his, his appearance will be completely changed. He'll be completely humbled. We talked about that last week. The humility of having that shaved as he humbles himself before the Lord in the fulfillment of this oath. And so the apostles... Uh, when they greet him, they say, we have an idea. This is our advice to you, okay? They said, we have four other men here who have also taken the oath of the Nazarite, and they need to have their heads shaved too. So you go together with them into the temple. And we want you, Paul, to pay for their haircuts because you had to pay a fee to have this done. It wasn't just paying the barber, but it was an offering that you brought to the Lord. So I want you to finance the offering for all five of you. All five of you will go and have your heads shaved at the same time, and you will pay for that, and you will prepare the sacrifices. They had to bring sacrifices uh, for the days of their purification, which was an entire week of purification that they had to go through and say in the temple. Now, the reason for that we see in verse 20. Look at verse 20 of chapter 21. In Acts chapter 20, uh, 21, verse 20, it says, And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, this is what the apostles said to him, You see, brother, and when I say apostles, we're talking Peter's there, James there, you know, the apostles. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Okay? And that's why they have this idea. They want him to do this so that all the thousands of believing Jews will see that that's not true. That Paul actually still uh, fulfills the customs and the law of the Jews. Because they're saying that wherever he goes to preach, he's, he's, not, he's telling the Jews not to circumcise their sons anymore. He's telling the Jews not to live like Jews anymore, which was a complete lie. And we've seen that in the book, in the book of Acts, that they preached to the Gentiles that this was not required for salvation. And they preached to the Jews that it's not required for salvation. But he never told Jews to stop being Jews. That, by the way, is very important. When you come to Jesus... Your race doesn't change, your color doesn't change, your language doesn't change, your personality doesn't change. Sometimes it does, but not overnight, that's for sure. Uh, the parts of things that are not of God. But our culture is, 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 is sanctified before God. I mean, God's not against our culture. God's not against our race. He's not against our color. He's not against the family we grew up in, our social status, or any of these kinds of things. And we should never be ashamed of those things before God. We should never live our lives in a way that we're just trying to be like everybody else. And I heard a really, for some reason, I won't tell where or anything about it, but I heard this tragic story that a person I absolutely don't know uh, wanted to tell me about their life growing up in this community. And it, honestly, it, it broke my heart because this person's entire life, they've, they've lived, and their mother's life, uh, they lived their lives trying to fit into this community and feeling that they never could fit into this community. And it was all because of the color of their skin. And, you know, it broke my heart to hear that. And uh, I, I don't know why this person told me that, except I think God wanted me to pray for this person, so I started doing that, and I'm going to keep doing that. But just how in a community, 
people can be rejected because of the color of their skin, because of the place they were raised. I mean, you can be rejected in a community today because you're Russian. You can be rejected in a community because you moved from some other state or something like that. And people, they try to fit in. I think of the, 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 just the turmoil that our teenagers and our kids go through trying to fit in and instead of just being themselves before God. So Paul never taught the Jews to reject Moses, and he never taught the Jews not to circumcise their children. So the apostles have this idea, we need to let them know about that. I'm not sure that was the best idea, but Paul went along with it. You'll notice that nothing's written here about the Holy Spirit said. This was just an idea. It was just counsel. But God worked through it, and he did that. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things here. So listen carefully. They say, this is really important to the story, they say that there are thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, this is the Feast of Pentecost while Paul is there. So Jews have come from all over the world. And when they say thousands in the Greek, it's actually the word myriads, and it means tens of thousands. They say to Paul, you see how there are tens of thousands of Jews who believe. Please pay attention to that. There are Jewish Christians, they weren't called that back then, but Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. These are believers tens of thousands of believers that have come to this huge conference for Christian believers, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That's very important to the story. And then they say, you see that they all are zealous for the law. The word zealous here is also really important because it makes reference, direct reference, to a political party that existed in Israel at that time called the Zealots. And if you've read the New Testament, you've read about the zealots. One of Jesus' disciples had been a zealot. And the zealots were actually a political party. And they had a lot of power. And they were kind of a, you know, make Israel great again party. Okay, I'm not trying to offend anybody here. But if, if you're on the other side, then they were a build Israel back better party. But, you know, it was all about we've got to get back to what Israel is supposed to be. And that means we've got to get rid of the Romans. Okay, so the party was actually quite powerful, and inside of the party, there was a small group of radicals. Now, these people would not have belonged to that group of radicals. These people are actually called the assassins, and they assassinated people, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they supported this party in general. They supported the law in the sense of we have to maintain our customs and keep this going. Okay, but they're Christians now. They're believers but their political leanings are still toward the zealots, okay? And, and they want, the apostles want to please them. Do you know why? Because they have lots of trouble from these people. Why did Paul have to bring an offering to Jerusalem? Because the church has broken Jerusalem. Nobody cares about the apostles. They're being persecuted. They're, they're not on the in crowd, okay? And so they would like to be on the in crowd. How many of you would like to be on the in crowd? Wouldn't that be nice? But it seems like you can't follow Jesus and be on the in crowd. It seems like you can't be popular with people and be popular in heaven. And that's just the way it is. And Jesus said, you'll take up your cross and follow me. So they want to quell these strong rumors. Rumors have spread around the world that um, Paul is teaching Jews who live in Gentile nations to forsake Moses, 
not to circumcise their sons and to reject the Jewish customs. And then when you go from verse 27 through to the end of the chapter, from verse 27 through to the end of the chapter, there's an incident where some Jews that have come from Asia, remember Asia is modern-day Turkey, from Asia Minor. Some Jews, and we have to read into this, Jewish believers, okay? This is really important, that these Jews are what we would call today also Christians. They've accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but they are against Paul. They are against him because they're zealous for the law and they think he's doing these things. So they assume that Paul had taken a guy named Trophimus the Ephesian. Trophimus the Ephesian is a faithful member of Paul's team, and he was there with Paul in Jerusalem. But they assumed that he took him into the temple when he went into the temple with these four other guys. Now, how could they assume that? Well, it's pretty easy. If you knew somebody that had a full beard all of their life, you knew five men that had full beards all of their life, and suddenly their, face, their heads are completely shaved, you're not even going to recognize them. And because when we assume things, it's because we have a prejudice toward that. They're trying to find dirt on Paul. And so when they see him in the temple with these other guys, they don't even know who they are. And they just assume that means he took a Gentile into the temple. And that was very, very against their belief system. Was it against the law? Not really. Jesus said that this house should be a house of prayer for all nations. But it was against their prejudices. It was against their understanding, the pharisaical understanding of the law. So they used this as a pretext to start a riot. And they accused Paul of desecrating the temple. And they actually, the, the, listen to this. These are people that believe on Jesus. These are very religious, dedicated people. They are dedicated to the Lord. They've spent tons of money to get to, to, to this conference in Jerusalem called Pentecost. They're really excited about what God wants to do in their nation. And they decide they're going to take Paul and they're going to kill him. How can that happen? It can. It can happen. Now, it's not very likely that many of us are going to actually physically kill somebody in our lives, but how many people do we kill with our tongues? How many people do we kill with our thoughts? And Jesus said that if you have evil in your heart against another, that you've already murdered them with your own thoughts. You've murdered them with your own tongue, with your own words. So they're going to kill him. And in typical Pharisaical religious fashion, they take him. If you read the story, it makes a, 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 an accent on a little detail that they take him outside the temple to kill him. And they close the doors of the temple. Because there's a lot of things as Christians that we won't do in church, but we'll do outside of the church. Oh, we're not going to do that in church. But, you know, the whole temple is holy to God, inside or outside. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So they're going to kill him outside the closed doors of the temple. And there's a mob. And this mob is huge. Okay, when you read this, don't underestimate the size of this mob. It's, it's big. It's a riot going on in Jerusalem. It's so big that Paul is saved from this mob by the commanding officer of the entire Roman cohort from Caesarea. This is a man that was over ten different centurions. Okay, He's called uh, just a commanding officer in English, but the Greek would be more like uh, the officer over a thousand. He's the highest military officer in Judea. And he personally has to get involved to save Paul from this mob. 
That's how big the riot was. They brought in the big guns, okay? They brought in, you know, SWAT team deluxe. They brought everybody in, and this guy gets involved personally in this thing. And he takes Paul, and he puts him in chains, real chains, binds his hands and feet with chains, uh, because he assumes that Paul is a very well-known terrorist that they've been seeking to arrest for quite some time. So look with me at chapter 21 and verse 37. It says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Kilikia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. Remember, there's a huge crowd. A riot is going on in the streets. And he motions with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, and then his speech begins there. So let me draw out a few points from this that are important to the understanding of the message today. Take courage. First of all, this commanding officer assumed that he is the Egyptian. The Egyptian is actually a famous terrorist back in those days because even uh, Josephus wrote about this guy. Okay, we don't know his name, but we do know what he did. He was a false prophet. He was a false prophet, and he had gathered 30,000 zealots. Remember, this is a political party. 30,000 of these radicals, uh, in, not the whole party was that radical. But inside of the party was this radical element. And 30,000 of them gathered on the Mount of Olives. And this Egyptian told them that he is the Messiah. So there would have been Christians involved in this also. Okay? That got swept away with their political ideas. Do you understand? And they forgot about what Jesus said. Had not Jesus already told them that the Romans are going to come and they will not leave one stone upon another in this, in this city. And you need to flee from this city. Did Jesus not tell them that? But they didn't believe that. What they believed is we're going to make Israel great again. What they believed is we're going to turn everything back and we're going to get rid of the Romans. And 30,000 of them gathered at the Mount of Olives and they actually attempted to overthrow the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. This is a historical fact. And this Egyptian guy was going to establish himself as the dictator in Jerusalem, as the Messiah. So that didn't, didn't pan out. The Roman garrison was able to stop them. And he escaped into the wilderness with 4,000 assassins. So I'm thinking of this kind of 1,001 Arabian Nights picture. You know, these guys out in the wilderness, they're assassins. They've got their faces covered. But who are these people, the assassins? That's also important to the story. So the word assassin, uh, the assassins, plural, in the Greek is, is a standard term for a group of people that actually existed. They're called the sikari, sikari. And they're called that because they carried a sika. A sika is a dagger with a curved blade, like a little scimitar. And they would hide the sika in their cloaks, and they actually were assassins. Their modus operandi was to go into public places and assassinate public figures in front of everybody, but do it in such a way that they could draw back and blend into the crowd and they'd never get caught. They had, this is important, they had a blood oath. They had a blood oath. It was a mafia thing. And this blood oath meant that they could never betray one another to the, to the authorities. 
They would rather die first. They would rather lose their life first. And their whole reason for doing these things, their ideology, that's always important. What are, what are people's ideology? Their ideology was to remove false teachers and desecrators of the temple. Now, what are they calling Paul? A false teacher and a desecrator of the temple. They had to remove these false teachers and desecrators of the temple and those who desecrate the Torah, the books of Moses. And what are they accusing Paul of? That he's desecrating the books of Moses by teaching Jews to reject Moses, which Paul was not doing. But it's what they were saying. They demanded Jewish allegiance to God, which is a good thing, but they believed Jewish allegiance to God could only come about by overthrowing Rome and not giving allegiance to Rome. Why do you think they tested Jesus in those days? If you remember during his ministry on the earth, as it comes up to the last week of his life, and they tested him, they produced a coin. And they said, is it lawful to pay the tax to Caesar? Because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to turn the society against him, the zealots against him, because this was a huge movement. And Jesus, of course, had the wisdom to say, well, whose picture is on that coin? Well, Caesar, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But you give your heart only to God. And he turned everything on its head. Because these people were giving their allegiance not to God, but giving their allegiance to an ideology. Now, like I said, not all of them were this radical, but there was this radical part inside of this party. And they were called the assassins, the Sikari, because they carried this Sika. Now, you have to understand this. This is not a small thing. I don't know if I can emphasize this enough to you. This was huge in these days. And if you were reading the book of Acts at that time, you would know all about this. The height of the power of the Sikari, the assassins, was during the reign of Felix, when Felix was the Roman procurator in, or the Roman governor in Caesarea and over Jerusalem. You'll read about him in Acts chapter 24, okay? Because this is the time of Felix. So this was the height of their power during this time. Through their terror, these zealots, and they were terrorists, these, these zealots, they fomented a revolt against Rome. That revolt began in AD 66, and the revolt culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. They are the reason that this happened. It didn't work out for them. Now notice, let me draw you back to what Paul says to him. He says to him, to the commander, this, you know, over the entire Roman cohort, he says, may I say something to you? In Greek, he says, literally more like this, is it permitted for me to speak something to you? And what's written there in Greek is so polite. It's so, such perfect Greek. It's a way of speaking that no Jew would be able to speak unless he had a classical education, unless he was an educated Jew from an educated place who had been educated in the classical Greek education. Uh, I can tell you this because I speak Russian and I speak English, but uh, I'm probably a little better, better at it now in Russian. <laughs> but for years in Russia, I never wanted to call anybody on the phone because I, you know, I could ask, you know, can I talk to so-and-so, but I couldn't say it in that polite little way. It, if any of you speak two languages in your second language, you know, you don't get all those little polite things. You're not able to say things with those, those little uh, uh, turns and, and ways of speaking that the native people speak. Do you know what I'm saying? And so when Paul spoke this, the Roman uh, commander, he immediately knew this is not that Egyptian. It's impossible. 
because that Egyptian could never speak in this way. And he said to him, do you know Greek? Well, everybody knew a little bit of Greek. That's not what he meant. What he meant is, are you educated? Are you an educated man? Then you are not this Egyptian. And the change that came over the Roman uh, commander was so powerful. Can you imagine that one minute he thinks he's got Osama bin Laden in chains? Okay? And the next minute he's allowing him to stand up and make a speech to the people. So this is huge. It was a big change. And it shows the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul. Paul used great wisdom when he said, is it permitted for me to speak something unto thee? And he spoke to him, and that changed the entire situation. His assumption was that Paul had to have been this Egyptian. And at this point in the story that we just read, Paul reveals that he is a well-educated Jew. But he does it so with so much wisdom. In this story, as you read through this, you'll see that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, and I'll, get, I'll share a moment with you that will show you that Paul's still in his flesh, too. This is by the Holy Spirit, that he's as wise as a serpent, but as harmless as a dove. He doesn't say to him, now wait a minute, you can't do that to me, I'm a Roman citizen right off the bat. He just says a little sentence. May I speak some, is it permitted for me to speak something unto thee? And it changes everything, the wisdom that he has. And so he reveals to the Roman commanding officer that I am a Jew from the city of Tarsus. And then he reminds the Roman commanding officer that Tarsus is a very important city. Now here's a couple of things that you need to know about Tarsus that that commanding officer would have known. Not long before in history, during the time of Julius Caesar, you know, a hundred years before this, the city had actually been called Iuliopolis in honor of Julius Caesar. And this is the city where Cleopatra, if you ever read Shakespeare, Cleopatra and Mark Antony actually met in this city. It was a very important city to the Romans. It was a center of academic intellectuals. And there was one famous philosopher from this city who had been the tutor of Augustus Caesar. And because he was the tutor of Augustus Caesar, this city was made an imperial patronage and the capital of all of Calicia. So everyone knew that this was, you know, the place to go to get educated. But Paul tells him, I was born in this city. I was raised in this city, and I was educated in this city. He does not tell him yet that he's a Roman citizen, but he tells him, I'm somebody important. And the guy listens to him. Everything changes. So then we come down here in chapter 21, and on into chapter 22, going up to verse 21, and... Paul speaks to the mob. Now, I'm not going to go over that in very much detail. Uh, I want you to read that. But he speaks to them in the Hebrew dialect. So there's another interesting thing. He goes from perfect Greek to perfect what's called Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect, in just one second flat. You know, I mean, this is a very educated man. And he has a lot of wisdom from God. And as he's speaking to this mob, get this. This is how much God's changed the situation already. The Roman commander has no idea what he's saying. He can't understand the Hebrew dialect. So he thinks he's got Osama bin Laden in chains. He says one sentence to him in Greek, and it changes everything completely. And he lets him stand up, takes the chains off, lets him wave his hands around and make a speech to the, to the mob that was getting ready to overthrow the whole city. And when he starts speaking, he doesn't speak in Greek. He speaks in Hebrew, and he still trusts him to allow him to go on speaking. The wisdom that God gave him opened the door. When Jesus opens the door, nobody can shut it. And when he closes the door, nobody can open it.
So they listen intently to his story, and he recounts his conversion on the road to Damascus. It's like Paul's Deuteronomy moment. You know, Deuteronomy is a repetition of the law, and he repeats his conversion experience to them. But he offers one new detail in the story. He tells them, and we didn't see this in chapter 9 of Acts, but he tells them that after he left Damascus, remember he was, he was lowered down uh, from the wall in a basket. It was quite humiliating for Paul because they had to get him out of Damascus because they wanted to kill him in Damascus. And after he got, gets out of Damascus, he tells them this new detail, that he went back to Jerusalem, and he says that he went into the temple. And while he was in the temple praying, that Jesus came to him in the temple in a vision. Okay? And that Jesus told him to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to leave Jerusalem because the Jews in Jerusalem will not listen to him. That sets them off. They go nuts. Because he's just told them that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is in the temple, and that Jesus has rejected Jerusalem for a time being because you've rejected him, and that he sent me to the Gentiles. So with their political leanings with the feelings that they have, with the, the, the emotions that have been stirred up in that crowd, the crowd goes absolutely nuts. Because here's Saul, who's now called Paul, the guy that used to be the leader of all the Pharisees, the guy that used to be on their side, the guy that used to put Christians to death, the guy that stood there when Stephen was being stoned and gave assent to the murder of Stephen, and here's he saying, I repented of my sin. And Jesus stood by my side, and he's with me today. So the mob is infuriated. The commanding officer puts him under arrest again. Or he's still under arrest, you know, but takes him back again. And we read that they stretch him out on a rack because they're going to scourge him with whips now. Why? Because they're going to get the truth out of Paul one way or another. I mean, you can imagine how this commanding officer feels. Something crazy is going on, and I don't understand it. So we're going to torture him. And by torture, we'll make him tell us the truth. So they stretch him out on the rack. Look at chapter 22, verse 25. Chapter 22, verse 25. It says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Oh, he didn't tell him that before, did he? You see how God just meets out these things by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Now he tells him, I'm a Roman citizen. Is it lawful for you to do this? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander, because the commander himself wasn't there. He had the centurion do the dirty work, of course. And he went to the commander and told the commander, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came personally. The head of the entire Roman corps gets involved again. He came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. He's like, why didn't you tell me that before? Because it wasn't the time yet. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, well, I was actually born a citizen of Rome. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So now they let him go completely. You know, in those days, you could buy the Roman citizenship. So that shows us that this commanding officer of the Roman cohort was most likely at one time a slave. He was not born a Roman. 
you ever read a story like Ben-Hur or something, you'll see this. You could be adopted into the Roman citizenship. You could purchase the Roman citizenship. Probably he was a slave captured in a great battle. Probably he was a commander of men for some other country. Probably he was a great warrior. And because he was a great warrior, perhaps he was even a gladiator. We don't know. But at some point, he was able to get together enough money to purchase Roman citizenship. And he was made, through the process of time, the commanding officer over the entire Roman cohort. And he said, I had to pay money, big money, for this citizenship. How did you, little Jew, get this? You told me you were a Jew. Oh, I was born into it. I was born a Roman citizen. And that made them terrified. So... At this point, when he makes this revelation to him, the Roman uh, officer uh, decides that he's going to make a, bring together what we would call a grand jury. He says, tomorrow I'm going to get the entire Sanhedrin together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Amongst them are zealots also. And I'm going to bring Paul in front of them, and we're going to hear this out in the Roman way, in a civilized way, and we're going to get to the bottom of this thing. Okay. So then we go to chapter 23, and in verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, we read about how Paul begins to defend his character in front of the Sanhedrin. He's standing before this grand jury of his peers, and as he stands before this jury, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he begins by saying that all of my life I have lived with a good conscience before God. And as soon as he says that, somebody slugs him right in the mouth. Just slugs him in the mouth. Read it. He's, he stands up at the grand jury. He has the podium. The Roman guy's there. Everybody's there. Everything's supposed to be civilized. And he says, all of my life, I have lived in good conscience before God. He defends his character. A normal human feeling. Isn't it? To defend our own character. And somebody just out of the blue slugs him in the mouth because the high priest tells them to go punch him in the mouth. And so one of the high priest servants punches him in the mouth. So like a normal human, in normal flesh, Paul is caught off guard by that. And he turns to the high priest and he attacks him and curses him. But he's in his flesh. It's not by the Holy Spirit. Because this is a trap to get Paul to fall into. Understand? That's why they punched him in the mouth. They know what they're doing. And if they can trap Paul now and make him say all kinds of things out of his mouth, normal human things. But you know, the Holy Spirit leads us in a way that's not normal for our flesh. And Jesus even said to them that you will be dragged before synagogues. He said this to his, to his apostles. You will be put on trial. And before you go to that trial, you are not supposed to premeditate what you're going to speak at that trial. You just show up and let the Holy Spirit speak through you. Well, Paul obviously has premeditated a defense, a normal human thing. He's thought about it all night. What am I going to say to them? And then he gets punched in the mouth, and everything's messed up. And he says something he shouldn't have said. And then they say, how dare you speak to the high priest like this? And then he says, I didn't know that he was the high priest. Now, some people think that was sarcasm. I don't think so. I think he literally didn't know that guy was the high priest. And he says, but the law says, the word of God says, that you should not speak evil of those who have authority. And so Paul checks himself by the word of God, and he does not fall into the trap. So we see that Paul's not just some superhero spiritual guy here, and that's why he's being led through this. He's really listening to the Holy Spirit every step of the way. He's listening to what the Bible says. 
He remembers himself and stops himself before he goes too far. And he's saved by remembering the word of God and listening to the Holy Spirit. And then we read in chapter 23, beginning with verse 6, that Paul suddenly perceives something by the Holy Spirit. And God gives him wisdom. Suddenly he has this Holy Spirit moment. Everything before that was his premeditated defense of himself. Right? What his lawyers told him to do. But now he's standing naked before God. Now he's just been punched in the mouth by the high priest's servant and kind of slapped upside the head by God, telling him by the Bible, you're doing the wrong thing here, Paul. And he's just standing there. And suddenly that's when the clarity comes. Clarity comes to him by the Holy Spirit. And he looks and he realizes, wait a minute. This whole grand jury is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. This is all going through his head in one second by the Holy Spirit. Pharisees believe in the resurrection. Pharisees believe in angels. Pharisees believe in visions. And Sadducees don't. And he turns the whole grand jury into an opportunity to preach Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so he preaches Jesus raised from the dead. And it divides the grand jury. It divides the Sanhedrin. And they start fighting with each other. Because the Pharisees are saying, well, if he's preaching about being raised from the dead, we believe in the resurrection. And the Sadducees are saying, ah, the resurrection, that's a bunch of you know, hogwash. We don't believe in that. And they start fighting with each other and forget all about Paul. And so in chapter 23, verse 9, we can see one of these verses. It says, and there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, you know, Bible words, argue heatedly. These people are shouting each other down. Okay? They begin to argue heatedly, it says. We find nothing wrong with this man. Suddenly, they're not against Paul anymore. So, uh, nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. What if Jesus is raised from the dead? What if this really is from God? Then we don't want to be against God. And the Sadducees say, no, we think this guy's wrong. So they can't decide anything. And so the council is completely uh, divided. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to take the time to read it because we're going over a lot of ground here. And this is all preparatory for what I want to say to you, really. But I don't know if you remember the story of Jesus when he's on trial before the high priest. It's a different high priest, but it's the high priest in Jerusalem. You could look at John chapter 18 and read that story. And you would see, this is really important, you would see that what's happening to Paul now is exactly what happened to Jesus. When Jesus stood before the high priest, they also punched him in the mouth. They also knocked his teeth out almost and told him, you better shut up and not talk to the high priest like this. And Jesus said to them, if I've said something, all Jesus told them is if you want somebody, if you want me to give an answer to you, you have to have witnesses in here. If you remember that story. Because the law says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, he basically pled the fifth. You can't compel me to testify against myself. Bring your witnesses on. Ask my disciples. Ask those people out there. And that's when they punched them in the mouth. And then Jesus said to them, if I've spoken something evil, then, then judge me for that. If what I've said is according to the law, then why do you hit me? And they stopped because Jesus was right. So here's a kind of moment in this story that's really important. Paul is standing here as Christ's witness. And I don't think he really realizes it yet until he gets that punch in the mouth. 
and everything gets back to where it's supposed to be. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness for Jesus. You know, Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, first of all. Suddenly he realizes being a witness for Jesus maybe isn't exactly what I thought it was. Now, I think Paul already understood that, but maybe we need to realize that today. That being a witness for Jesus doesn't exactly mean that I've got some pamphlets and I walk around knocking on doors and passing them out to people. Being a witness for Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that I work with somebody for 20 years and I've never once told them anything about the Lord or that I'm a Christian, but I just believe that, well, I'm living my life in a way that they can see that. I mean, being a witness, really the word witness in the Greek is the same word as the word martyr. Being a witness for Jesus means that you take up your cross and you follow Jesus, that you lay down your life for him, that what happened in the life of Jesus is repeated in our lives, that unless we take up our cross to follow him, then we're not really following him. So Paul has been carrying this cross, and he sets this cross down again in Jerusalem, just as Jesus did. And when the cross is set down in Jerusalem, it becomes one of two things, always. It becomes a stumbling block for those who do not believe, or it becomes a cornerstone to build the life up for salvation of those who do believe. But it always draws the line between Pharisees and Sadducees. It always divides everything. And so Paul gets back to the message. He puts this cross down and proclaims that Jesus Christ will be glorified in this place. So look with me at chapter 23, verse 11. They take Paul back. They're still holding him. They basically give him a, uh, uh, arrest him for his own protection because they're getting ready to tear him in pieces, it says. And while he's in the jail cell sitting there at night, it says in verse 11, but on the night following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed or testified to my cause, or literally it says, as you have sol solemnly testified of me at Jerusalem, so you must also testify at Rome also. So you must also fulfill this call that's on your life. This is a confirmation that comes to Paul that he's been faithful to preach the gospel in Jerusalem exactly the way that Jesus wanted him to do it. It could have been that in the back of his mind all this time he's thinking, why didn't I listen to prophet Agabus? Why didn't I listen to Luke and all the members of my team that said, don't go to Jerusalem? This really doesn't seem to be working out the way that I thought it would work out. You know, nothing ever does in life. <laughs> but when you're following Jesus, you can trust that he is working out the way he wants it to work out. And so he gets this confirmation. Jesus shows up and he's standing by his side. And he speaks to him, take courage. I want you to hear this this morning in your life. I believe that Jesus is standing by your side and maybe you don't even know it. Maybe you haven't even recognized him. Maybe you haven't even been paying attention. But Jesus has been by his side this whole time. And when Paul finally gets to the end of all of this and he's asleep at night, suddenly he recognizes in his sleep, oh, Jesus is in the room with me. And he looks and he sees Jesus. And Jesus says to him, take courage. You have not failed me. You've done a good job. You know, when Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, it doesn't mean we were perfect in everything, does it? Because no servant is. It means you've been faithful to me. 
You haven't given up. You haven't quit. You have your moments there, Paul, but you didn't give up on me. You stood your ground and you testified in the face of, in the face of great terror. You testified to my name. Basically saying, I'm proud of you, Jesus. I'm proud of you, Paul, Jesus is telling him. And don't worry, this isn't over yet. You're going to get all the way to Rome and you'll do the same thing for me there. So take courage. I believe today that we need to hear that word more than anything else. Take courage that Jesus is still in control. Take courage to stay the course. We have a promise that Jesus will lead us all the way to our Rome. Our Rome is our call in this life. Paul knows he's been called to Rome from the very beginning. And Jesus will get us there if we just stand our ground and stay with him. And we will give testimony to him before all the world as Paul will stand before Caesar. Now look with me at chapter 23, verse 12. Chapter 23, verse 12. We're almost done. It says, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy, and they bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot, and they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he ever comes near this place. And just like with Jesus and Judas, the council agrees to this crazy plan also. Now, here's something that you need to understand. These are those same assassins we've been talking about. These are those sicarii, those Jews. And their motivation for doing this is they really believe somewhere in their sick minds, because it's only a sick mind that could believe that. They really believe that by killing Paul, they're doing God a service. They really believe that. And they really believe that if we can publicly kill Paul, the dagger, remember? And Paul gets it from all sides, and then they draw back into the crowd, and nobody knows how it happened. Nobody knows who did it. Nobody will blame the Sanhedrin. Nobody will blame the Pharisees. Nobody will blame the Sadducees, but you guys help us out with this. This is an unholy alliance. The Pharisees actually hated the Sikari and hated the Zealots in real life. Why? Because the Pharisees wanted to get along with Rome. Because they had a lot of money. The Sadducees especially. These guys are super rich. And they work with Rome. So they didn't really like the Zealots. But because they all hated Paul so much, remember what God told Samuel? They have not rejected you. They've rejected me. It's because they really all hated Jesus that much. And they had to kill Paul. So they made an unholy alliance. And just so you'll know how powerful this movement was, Here's a couple of historical facts. This same high priest who's standing here, Ananias. His successor, the next high priest, his name is Jonathan. He was actually murdered by these same people, by these Sikari. In the temple, they stabbed him to death, and he died, because they actually hated these high priests. And then Ananias, the guy that's there on that day, the guy that told Paul to get punched in the mouth, in A.D. 66, when the revolt started, these same Sikari, they murdered him in the temple also. 
And this is the atmosphere that Paul's in. It's an atmosphere that I think we can compare to the world we live in today. Because there is an unholy alliance today of false prophets and antichrists. And their goal is to destroy the inheritance of Christ. Their goal is to destroy the church. I mean, I could take you back two years to telling all the churches to shut down because somebody's coughing, because there's COVID going around. Their goal, ultimately, is to destroy the church, to destroy the body of Christ. And they have a blood oath. And I'm not getting into some conspiracy theories here. Like one guy said not long ago, and I heard him on a podcast, and I thought, well, that's true. All the conspiracy theories, they're just spoiler alerts. It all turns out that they're true later on. But, you know, I'm not talking deep states up here or anything like that, you know, but it's there. There is an unholy alliance of people that actually hate each other, but because they hate Jesus more, they want to bring down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you what Jesus said, the gates of hell cannot prevail against this church that I am building. So take courage. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and we have come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel to this day cries out from the ground against every murderer, against every person, that God would take vengeance against them. Each one of us have our own daggers in our own breasts. Each one of us are Cain's. Each one of us are capable of and have already murdered people with our thoughts and with our words and with our evil intents. And everything about that demands that God judge us. For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a blood oath against us. There is a blood oath of Satan. There is a dragon And there are two beasts, and they are all working together in the book of Revelation. But we have a blood oath with Jesus. We have a blood that washes away all of our sin. We have a blood that gives us a new start every single day. We have a blood that never rejects us, but always receives us. And we have come to the blood of the sprinkling, it says in Hebrews. And we don't live, we don't go to a, a... Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox Church or a Catholic Church here. But some of you have raised Catholics, some of you have been around that, you know, and you know what sprinkling is. And in the old days, they would literally, the, you know, Moses was commanded to take the blood of the offering, mix it with water, and sprinkle it on all the people. Everybody got wet with blood. They knew what this meant. Everybody's life is covered. Everybody is covered by the blood of Jesus. All you have to do is be under the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is a cure for all of our diseases. It's forgiveness for all of our sin. The blood of Jesus is deliverance from every power of Satan. In the blood of Jesus, there's no such thing as a generational curse. In the blood of Jesus, there's no such thing as my life is over, everything's ruined, everything's destroyed. Under the blood of Jesus, there's only this. He's standing next to you, and he's saying to you today, take courage. You haven't failed. Everything's okay. Stay with me, and I'll take you all the way to the end. And you will stand as my witness in Rome also. Take courage. So Paul takes courage. 
And the story ends at the end of chapter 23 that you're going to read for your homework, that Jesus says to him to take courage. And then something happens. Paul has a nephew, it turns out. Turns out his sister lives in Jerusalem, or she's there visiting. And he's got this kid, nephew. Just this kid. Maybe a kid that Paul doesn't really pay a whole lot of attention to. I don't know, you know, his nephew. I'm sure he loves him, but it's his nephew. And his nephew overhears somehow, miraculously, this is how God works. His nephew overhears the story of the Sikari that have taken a blood oath that we will not eat anything, we will not drink anything. That means we will die first if we don't kill Paul. He overhears this, and he's got enough smarts to run to the commander. And when he gets there, they don't let him in, of course. He's talking to some low-level officer. He's saying, blah, 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 blah. And then he gets to go to Paul, and he tells Paul about it, and Paul says, okay. I didn't know how the answer was going to come, but I knew the answer was going to come. Thank you, nephew. Now you go tell that to the commanding officer. They tells him that, and the commanding officer uh, says that we're going to take Paul out of here. We're going to take him, eventually they're going to take him to Felix. That'll be the next story. But I'm going to establish that there will be 200 soldiers guarding him. What's this? 200 soldiers to guard Paul. 70 mounted cavalry. There's like 70 tanks today to cover Paul's back. And 200 spearmen. I mean, this is, Paul gets an entourage of soldiers like only the emperor would have. God's taken him from being Osama bin Laden in their mind to being on the level of the emperor now. And they're surrounding him with these people because his life is so important. And then he writes a letter to Felix and he lays it all out for him that this guy is important. I don't know anything about him, but he's a Roman and he's making the whole town crazy and you need to figure this out. And he moves up the ladder toward Rome. Suddenly he's standing before the Roman governor. So when we follow Jesus, when we're walking with Jesus, there's always, listen, there's always going to be a nephew waiting in the wings for you. Somebody you don't expect. God has an answer. He has a way. He will provide you with 200 soldiers, 70 mounted cavalry, and 200 spearmen. But he will get you out of the position that you think you're stuck in. Because you're not stuck. Jesus is with you. If you're stuck, he's stuck with you at least. You're together. And he's saying, take Courage. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we read about Elijah that Elijah says to God, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And he says, poor little Elijah. He gets so depressed, just like we do. He says, and I alone am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. How could you do this to me, God? And then God says to him, Oh, I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You're not alone. Wake up, Elijah. You're not alone. Get back to doing what I've called you to do. Get back on board with my plan for your life. It's not too late. Things aren't that messed up like you think they're messed up. I am with you. Take courage. In Acts chapter 18, verse 10, we already read when Paul was in Corinth that Jesus spoke to him there. He said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And you see that word he spoke to him in Corinth is still in force. 
It turns out even in Jerusalem, nobody can harm him. They can't kill him. They can't stone him. They can't stop him because God has many people on his side, people that you don't even know about. Suddenly it turns out that the highest commanding officer of the entire Roman cohort is a Jesus guy. He doesn't even know it. But he's been picked by God to use him to further the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has many people on his side. In Revelation, he said, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. I want to ask Cassidy to come up here right now. I want to pray for her. And I want to ask John to come up here. And Tanya. I just want to pray for Cassie this morning. I want us all to stand together. And if you want to come up and put hands on her to her family and everyone. This is just a word for you, Cassie, that, you know, he's put before you an open door. And nobody can shut it. And I know it's not going to be easy. <laughs> Nothing's ever easy. But it's going to be so filled with the grace of God. It's just going to, you know, you're going to look back on this and say, well, that was easier than I thought. And this has really worked. I mean this when I say that, you know, I... I you know, that, I just love how God's chosen you because, you know, it's like he takes the last and makes them the first. And, you know, when you first were coming up to sing years ago, I was like, what's she singing up there for? She's like so embarrassed and so shy and whatever, I don't know. She's like it's just a bundle of nervous energy or something. And, but you've just, this, it's even in your voice. It's, there's an anointing from God that's on you. And, and I'm not saying that to build you up. I'm really saying that to warn you to tell you that you stay faithful to that anointing because it's a gift that God gives you. And, and he will prosper you in that way. Um, I want to read a scripture to you. It's from 1 Timothy. It's what you know, Paul writes to Timothy there in chapter 4. And I know you know this verse, but just uh, think about this as the Lord <coughs> speaking this uh, to, to, to you. Until I come, you give attention to the scripture. You give attention to exhortation and teaching. So you exhort and you teach, but pay attention to the teaching that he's bringing to you, to the exhortation that he's bringing to you. Pay attention to the people that he's putting into your life, you know, people that you don't even know, but they're going to have a word, they're going to speak into your life, and you listen to that, you pay attention to that. Do not neglect the spiritual gift that's within you, because this was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. You didn't get this because you were born with this great musical talent. You know, you didn't get this because you're so much more special than everybody else or something. You know, you're special. But, but you got this because this is God's will for your life. And it's a gift that, that he's given to you. And it's bestowed upon you. So you pay attention to that because you're responsible for that. You take pains with these things. You be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. So that everyone sees your progress. You pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Cassidy this morning. We just bless our Lord. It's really easy to bless someone that's so blessed. And we just know that your hand is upon her, Lord. And, and we're just blessed to be able to be a part of this. So by the laying on 
of our hands, Lord. We just speak these words over her, that this gift and this anointing is from you. I pray that you would cause this to prosper in every way in her life. I thank you that you give your angels charge over her to keep her in all of her ways, Lord, that you protect her physically, that you protect her from all harm that could come from any direction, that you'll have many people there in Chicago, many people there at Moody, people that she doesn't even know about, Lord, and that no man will be able to harm her in any way. No false teaching, no lies, no deception from the enemy to come against her, no physical harm to come against her, that you would prosper her in all of her ways and cause her progress to be evident to all, Lord. I just thank you for Cassidy. I thank you for her precious family, Lord. And I just pray your blessings, Lord, that you would glorify uh, her and glorify her family, Lord. I thank you that you give us beauty instead of ashes and you raise us up and set our feet on a high place. And I bless her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, I can translate. You want to say it into a microphone? Okay. I worked for many years at a college. And one thing I want to say to you that's really important for a student is to have favor. And just praying that God is going to give you special favor at that college. open doors that nobody can close. Amen? And come back and visit us. And if the Lord sends you back permanently, great, but that doesn't always happen. But we're happy to sow you into whatever God has for you. Amen. Bless you. Jeff? Yeah. Lots of be proud. Amen? <laughs> And uh, so could we have the communion servers come forward and the worship team? As we receive communion, I just really want you to remember, because that's what Jesus said, that we do this in remembrance of him. We do this in remembrance of the blood covenant that we have with him, the oath that we've taken with him, the blood of Jesus that speaks better things than the blood of Abel crying out for our judgment. Amen? So who do we have up here? We've got Flynn. And Lily, right? I was told it was Floyd and Lily. Chickened out, huh? That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. So we got Flynn and Lily. Who else do we got? Oh, we've got this fine young man, Tristan. Come up here. Can I tell you all something? I told him this morning I love this vest. He made this. So. I've been looking for a tailor around these parts, and it's hard to find these days, but there he is. Good job, man. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for this bread. We thank you for this cup, Lord, this cup of your new covenant, that in the night in which you were betrayed, you took this bread and you said, eat this and do this in remembrance of me, for this is my body that is broken for you. And after the supper, you took this cup and you said, this is the cup of my new covenant of my new oath, of my new testament with you. And I bring you into that covenant by this blood, for this is my blood. And you said, do this in remembrance of you. So we do that in remembrance of you this morning. 
And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.